Welcome to It's the Pictures That Got Small, a movie club for the stuck at home. I'm Nate DeMeo. And I'm Karina Longworth. This week, Agnes Varda's musical portrait of female friendship in times of crisis and protest, one sings, the other doesn't. As always, we're going to play a game a bit later in the show, and we start off by talking about what we've been watching lately with our guest, culture writer Rachel Syme. So I just finished a great binge of The Great, which is the new yep. Hulu series from Tom McNamara, who wrote The Favorite, show ran a very absurdist, not historically accurate show about Catherine the Great, starring Elle Fanning. It's campy, it's naughty, it's very scatological and gross, and I totally enjoyed it. Um, getting into What We Do in the Shadows season two, because you gotta laugh. Um, we've been kind of watching a lot of old Seinfeld, which doesn't hold up, but especially <laughs> now it's like actually quite appalling. Um, but we're in season six, which is like the season of the big salad and the mom and pop store and about a thousand other storylines that are just like the gold standard. So it's been kind of fun to make fun of it. I have a, a few recommendations. A couple of them are half-hearted and then one is full-throated. Um, the first of the half-hearted ones is this movie um, on Amazon, I think from Amazon Studios, that's called The Vast of Night, which uh, in the socially distanced, uh, be masked kind of like talk of neighbors that I bump into here in my little corner of Los Feliz and Hollywood Hills adjacent is sort of the talk of the town, weirdly. <laughs> um, <laughs> so this is like a you know super low budget, early Spielbergian um, throwback, are there aliens movie set in the late 50s. Um, uh, in New Mexico, which I know Rachel. Wow, I'm from there. That's cool. I, now I want to see it. And shot, in New, and shot in New Mexico. Love our tax break. <laughs> it's, it's the nutshell is it's basically about a kind of hipster DJ and a nerdy switchboard operator who have tapped into mysterious frequencies. Ultimately, like really falls apart in the back half. But the first like 20, 30 minutes of it are exhilarating, and it has this really fresh. Um, direction, like all these wonderful kind of like uh, camera moves that are apparently like he puts his cousin on a go-kart and then like lets it ride through the crowd. And it's so inventive. Um, it's a first time director named Andrew Patterson, who also apparently edited it and co-wrote it, but under two separate pseudonyms. So he's got three credits, three names oh, wow. on this movie. And it really has this, like you watch these first like 20, 30 minutes before the whole thing kind of falls apart. You really feel like you're watching sort of an emerging talent. And he also turns these two actors that I have a feeling are perfectly fine, you know, kind of, uh, you know, young actors. He makes them seem like stars. And I'm not convinced they are stars. You know, it just feels like this guy's got something. And that's called The Vast Night. Totally worth watching. Um, and if you feel like, oh, I'm done after half an hour, you might be right. But the first half an hour is really something. I'm glad you. Uh, I'm glad you specified the uh, the situation on the first half hour versus the rest because we were considering going to the drive-in to see it. Yes. And the drive the drive-in is an hour away. <laughs> so <laughs> when, once you're there, you're not going to leave early. I think if we go to the drive-in, we're going to see the high note. The drive-in context might really add something to it because it feels like a drive-in movie. So you might be more forgiving of of its flaws because of that. Mm. Um, the second thing, which is which is it is a, I mean it's a quarter-hearted recommendation for something that really hit me nonetheless. Um, there's this kind of bad 
show in Apple Plus that we clicked on randomly, and it is called ludicrously Dear dot dot dot. It's like Dear Ellipsis. Oh no, you're not watching that. No. So here's the thing. It is not good. Oh. So, so this is, <laughs> and it is everything that is wrong with the whole Apple Plus project. It is a, it is this slick documentary series where they talk to the most predictable icons of pop culture, right? So it's Lin-Manuel Miranda. It's Stevie Wonder. And we happen to click on the uh, Spike Lee one, and it is the most reductive, simplistic you know, view of Spike and his movies. It only talks about four movies, and it talks about it in the most glossy way. But then it intercuts things with these, uh, these letters that people write uh, into Spike or, and the other artists, and they've written them over the years. Uh, we see uh, Spike read them and be affected by them, and we see uh, the people who've written them uh, uh, walk and talk while they read them. And I could not stomach five minutes of anything else, but there was something about the Spike Lee one that really got me. And maybe it's just my own relationship to Spike. But for instance, like seeing, you know, a 55-year-old man who's written to Spike and say, I did not even know that there were colleges for people, people like me. And now I'm the president of an HBCU. Uh, really, really worked to me. Like when it all comes down to it, it was just something about, uh, there was something that, that it captured in this super dumb show still about the ways that art goes out in the world and people receive it and people absorb it. I don't know. I don't even know if I can recommend it because it is ultimately feels like a show for, it feels like a show that should be for children that is made for adults. <laughs> but Nate, you, you are such an easy mark. I'm such I an easy mark. I cannot believe I know that. it. I know and that. And you were just playing into like you were, by watching that show and talking about it on this podcast, you were playing into Apple Plus like making them think it's okay to make stuff like this. I believe me. I understand. I feel like this is a place where we need to express a way we wrestle with bad art and good art. But yes. Oh my God. Wow. Well, I forgot to say before Carrie and I hear what you're talking about, one movie that we watched recently that I think is really good to counteract Nate's bad. Thank you. Well, I, I've been on like a sort of like a women filmmakers projects that I hadn't seen before tear and, uh, we watched Mikey and Nikki recently, which I had never yeah. seen. And yes. I'm so obsessed and I don't understand why Elaine May isn't, I mean, I know that there's been like a resurgence of like Elaine May fandom and people have Elaine May on t-shirts and like people are always like, she was the best part of Nicholas May, blah, blah, blah. I get that. And everyone's like, Ishtar should have gotten laurels also. And it wasn't so bad, but this movie is particularly, I was just like, how did she do a better film about 1970s New York than any man around her. It's so good, that movie. <laughs> How did she outcast of Eddie's him while having him in the movie? I, like, I truly loved it. Yeah, I was totally in the same boat in that movie where, like, I'd only vaguely heard of it, uh, knew sort of where it fit into the, you know, in, into the world of, of 70s New York movies, and then was like, oh... This is this is how women filmmakers get ignored because this thing rules and this thing does everything that people turn to the great you know male New York filmmakers uh, for. It does it just as good, if not better. I know they're like, but who's going to capture CD Underbelly of New York if not Taxi Driver? And you're like, well, here's news for you. She's doing it. Uh, let me try to claim reclaim my reputation a little bit <laughs> um, with my with my with my full throated uh, recommendation. My version of the randomizing app that Karina talks about on this podcast um, that chooses her movie watching for her sometimes is that I have this ongoing note in my notes app where I just jot down movies that I learn about some way that I want to watch at some point. 
but it's been it's so the list is so long and i did it so long ago and i'm so bad at taking like ancillary notes about where i learned about it or who's in it or anything like that that it might as well be random and so i not knowing anything about it um i turned on uh this movie uh the other day called the spiral staircase from 1946 the spiral staircase giving full range to the artistry of dorothy mcguire in a role so unusual so compelling so fraught with emotional power, no other actress would dare play it. An inspiring portrayal, destined to become her most distinguished screen triumph. Helen, I don't want to frighten you, but because of what happened in town today, we have to be especially careful for the next few days. It is a legitimately scary um, kind of, uh, you know, serial killer thriller where Dorothy McGuire is essentially being docked within this mansion in Vermont in the 20s. I sometimes when I'm watching old movies kind of forget where things are in terms of pre-code and post-code Hollywood. You know, there's some violence and some turns uh, that happen in it that I'm like, oh yeah, that's right. That can still happen in one of these movies. It is, uh, it's really good. And at 84 minutes, it is like a totally absorbing, genuinely scary, genuinely thrilling watch from 1946. So The Spiral Staircase. Well, we stand anything under than 90 minutes. Exactly. Well, so I'm going to talk about like some serious good art, and then I'm going to talk about the opposite. In an interesting uh, accident of timing, um, I got hired to do a freelance project about Spike Lee a few weeks ago. And so I've been um, watching a lot, basically nothing but Spike Lee movies for the past two weeks. Um, And so, you know, I think that we don't talk about how great Malcolm X is enough. Yes. Mm. Like it, it is on Netflix. It could not be easier to watch right now. Um, and it is, you know, we watched it. We started it at like 5 p.m. on a Sunday. We created an intermission to make dinner and then finished it, which is just like, you know, give yourself like the four and a half hours so that you can take a break in the middle if you need to. But it's so great. And it's it's Absolutely, this is the right time to be watching it. Um, And then another film of his that I actually had never seen before um, that is also uh, really easy to see right now, I think it's also on Netflix and is really great, is School Days, which is his second film. And it's his sort of like technicolor musical about um, his his experience at Morehouse College. It's a fictional college in in the movie because his actual alma mater wouldn't let him film there. but uh, it's it's super super great and um, and it has you know it's dealing with um, some really thorny issues but at the same time has like full on production numbers and ends on what I feel is a pretty optimistic note so I give my like full throated watch it right now tonight recommendation to school days. You know, and then I, I've mentioned a few times on this podcast that one thing I've been watching to sort of cope with isolation is Shark Tank. Yes. Um, and, and you know, it's like I've never been as into Shark Tank in my life as I have been over the past three months. And there's just something about like the sort of it's like cruel vision of capitalism mixed with like of like a very phony version of the American dream that I um, have been finding very comforting. And so I was like holding on to the season finale because (laughs) I don't know in what form Shark Tank will ever come back. And so I just I didn't want to waste it. Um, And then on Tuesday, I did this Instagram live thing to promote my other podcast. And like, I don't like to be looked at. And so actually being on video and looked at by people is very stressful. And so I decided that I was going to um, like save the Shark Tank for that night. <laughs> and so we watched the the season finale of Shark Tank. But 
it gets better. All right. So I don't know if people know about a show that is on Fox and now on Hulu called Celebrity Watch Party, but it's basically the American version of the British show Gogglebox. Um, which is a show where they put cameras in real people's living rooms and watch them, wa- film them watching TV. Sure. Um, and it's this reality show that's been on for a dozen years in England. You know, the the people, the normal people who are filmed watching TV have become like sort of daily male celebrities. Um, and so they did a, basically are doing this quarantine version of it in America with um, American celebrities and quasi celebrities being filmed watching TV. Wow. Um, on one of the episodes of Celebrity Watch Party, they watched the season finale of Shark Tank. Whoa. And so we we watched the season finale of Shark Tank, and then we watched them watch it. And <laughs> just like, the, I just really cannot express how thrilling it was. Yes, I had had two martinis, but it was still just like the best escapism that I've been able to sort of land on in a long time of like having this experience, watching this thing. Um, and like they, you know, they kind of saved like this sort of big pitch for the last of the season where something, you know, that doesn't ever happen on Shark Tank happens. And so you're watching it and you're like, this has never happened on Shark Tank before. <laughs> and then you're watching like Tyra Banks and her mom say, this has never happened on Shark Tank before. And so it's, you know, I just, I really, I haven't had an experience like that in a while of just pure joy. And sure. so. I can't full, you know, full-throatedly recommend Celebrity Watch Party because it's, you know, the stupidity of it is not going to be on everybody's level. Um, <laughs> but I do recommend that if they are watching something on Celebrity Watch Party that you enjoy, watching that thing that you enjoy back-to-back with watching them watch it on Celebrity Watch Party. Wow. Yet I am the easy mark. Well, I mean, dear dot, 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 come on. <laughs> no, like, I, I can't even imagine that being pleasurable. It just it, it was literally like it was clicked on. It was playing while I was cooking. <laughs> oh, now you're trying to blame other people in your house? Karina, can you tell us about the movie we just watched? I can. So um, by the time Agnes Varda made... Um, uh, one sings and the other doesn't. She had been making movies for over 20 years. She made her first film, La Pointe Court, in 1954, which was the same year that Francois Truffaut published his essay on certain tendencies in the French cinema in Cahiers de Cinema, which catalyzed the French New Wave. But Truffaut himself and a lot of the other male directors who we associate with the French New Wave would not direct their first films until the end of the 50s. Mm. In 1962, Varda became the toast of international cinema with her second feature, Cleo from 5 to 7. And that same year, um, Varda, who was by then a single mom to her daughter, Rosalie, married fellow filmmaker Jacques Demy, and they became sort of an international cinema it couple. When Demy was invited to Hollywood to make movies, Varda came too and made her own movies, including documentaries about the Black Panthers and the proliferation of street art around Southern California, as well as personal experimental features that blurred the line between fiction and nonfiction. Varda had been increasingly politically radicalized by her experiences in California and her encounters with American activists. And she came back to France in the early 70s, emboldened to play a major role in her home country's fight over abortion rights, which is, of course, woven into this movie. Mm-hmm. One Sings, The Other Doesn't was released in France in 1976 and trickled into U.S. cinemas over the course of the next two years. In 1978, 
Roger Ebert ended his four-star review of this movie by saying, What Varda's doing in a sneaky way is making her case for feminism in a lyric voice instead of a preachy one. This may be the most important thing to understand about the historical context of this movie. One of the most prominent film critics in America, and certainly not the most problematic one, was writing that he could recommend this film because it wasn't preachy. In other words, this is not the kind of feminism that you need to be scared of or made to feel defensive by. And this was one strategy of the times. Rather than announcing yourself as an activist and risk risk turning off the people that you need to reach, you could, to paraphrase Ebert, sneak in and sneak the feminism into the story of two pretty sexually liberated women who don't look like the media's negative image of man-hating feminists. Varda described herself as a feminist militant, and yet in one interview, she said her message, quote, sounds better when you sing it. This was in contrast to a film like Chantal Ackerman's John Dealman, which came out around the same time, and which showed the drudgery of a housewife's life without the leavening of pretty songs. Ackerman's film would become for many the epitome of feminist film as unfun. But in that both were trying to capture something of the actual conditions for women in the time and places they lived in, Verda had more in common with Ackerman than she did with most American female directors working in Hollywood at this time. When Varda had begun her career, the only female filmmaker working in Hollywood had been Ida Lupino. By the mid to late 70s, in Hollywood, there was Elaine May making movies like Mikey and Nikki, and a few other female directors working on a lower budget or more independent level, including Joan Micklin Silver and Stephanie Rothman. To learn more about these filmmakers in this time period in Hollywood, I would suggest reading the book Liberating Hollywood by Maya Montañez Smuggler. Um, and then also Rachel wrote um, a profile of of these six women who are called the original six who took on um, the, the film industry, the studios and the guilds in the 70s. But the American films being directed by women at the time were largely genre films, comedies, exploitation movies, period pieces. And generally, they weren't overtly feminist. You really could not make a movie in America at the time with such open dialogue about abortion. And during the mid-70s, the female filmmakers who did get work in Hollywood largely felt that they had to put aside their politics to prove that they could direct like a man. What we see as a result are that the female filmmakers who worked the most on the most mainstream visible films were largely directing movies that in their subject matter, their allegiance to established genres and their manner of address were not uniquely feminist or even what we would consider to be feminine. And we will discuss that further later in our game. Ooh, the game. Rachel, what were you expecting going into this one? I didn't know. I mean, I had heard that this was her musical movie, and so I was quite excited about that. I love a musical. I think we should have a real discussion on whether or not you two think this movie is a musical. Um, I know that Agnes Varda wrote the lyrics for all of the songs that Palm performs throughout the film, and... um, you know, there is a there's original songwriting at work here. But um, yeah, I didn't know what to expect. I mean, I knew a little bit about the film going in, but I kind of went in a little bit blind because I felt like that would be the best way to do. Um, sure. I was so surprised even from the very beginning. I mean, the first shot of the movie is like a picture of a woman with her breast exposed. And Pauline is very intrigued by this. And then she decides that she's going to go into this photography studio. But I can't tell if she's 
intrigued and drawn in by these women or she's disgusted by the pictures because she feels that they're predatory. I can't tell. But I I thought it was such a beautiful opening that it drew me in from the beginning. I found the opening really lovely. I found the the sort of like central question, you know, posed by her conversation with the photographer teed up the the ideas of the movie beautifully. But it was also, it came in at such sort of a, of a low key that to a certain degree, I, I think that I wasn't expecting. I think that it might just be sort of having come off of watching Daisies uh, with Rachel Chavkin on the show um, just the other week, knowing this was the musical about abortion and seeing, knowing some of the stills, I was expecting to a certain degree something sort of more madcap and uh, something more brazen uh, to a certain respect. And instead, like I found something quieter and therefore that just felt ultimately much more radical, despite Roger's take about sort of uh, Trojan horsing the issues in. I actually found its sort of vision of the world radical. And, and I know that I'm obviously saying that um, as a dude, uh, <laughs> but at the same time, I found its quietness to be genuinely stirring. Where are you on this, Karina? Oh, I loved it. Yeah. Um, I, you know, I find myself like I know that Varda is is one of my favorite filmmakers, but there's still, you know, I probably haven't seen half her films she was because so she prolific. was working for so yeah. long, and she's so prolific, and she made so many shorts and so many so many movies that are sort of like hybrids of documentary and fiction, and and not, you know, I mean, they, I think that Criterion actually just put out like a big set, but um, some yeah. of these things have not been that easy to see for a long time, so. Um, so I'd never seen this and it had been kind of on my list for a while. I'd had the Criterion disc on a shelf, but um, I'm really glad we used this opportunity to watch it because, and I mean, I just found it kind of um, both intellectually thrilling mm -hmm. and, you know, kind of just emotionally extremely satisfying. Um, and I don't, I don't know these performers. I don't rec recognize them from other films, but I found them both to be, you know, really charismatic and and, you know, delivering beautiful performances. Yeah, I mean, and especially um, Valerie Meris, I hope I'm saying her name correctly, uh, you know, who plays Pauline, who later renames herself Palm, you know, which means apple. It's like, she's so captivating. I mean, that red hair from the very beginning, I mean, that first shot of just her red ponytail. And it's almost like, I feel like you can just spot her anywhere in the film because of this sort of like fiery mane that feels very visually satisfying. That opening shot is so gorgeous. Like that just sort of like golden hour walking. What a simple, you know, way to establish a character. Um, and this sort of sun coming through her hair as she comes upon the black and white photographs is just lovely. And there's so many moments like that in this movie. And then just you know, the the sort of physical confidence she has and the way she carries herself and the way when she actually poses for the photographer, you know, he's it seems like he's like not getting what he needs. But then when he rips up those photos of her later, it's like I was like, I gasped. I was like, what are you doing? Those are great <laughs> photographs. But I also think she was willfully resisting him in those photographs. Like, yeah, she felt right. like she well, that's what yeah. that's what he that's probably why he wants to destroy them. Well, and I, and I feel like she already had such a sense of self. I mean, she's a performer, obviously, and goes on to be a singer professionally. But like, you know, there's something so brazen about her actions i mean it's funny because again i mean if we're talking about the first half hour of the film i mean the main 
plot point is that she meets um, Suzanne, who used to be her neighbor and was this like, you know, quote unquote, fallen woman, according to her parents. And then, you know, she she sees those photos of Suzanne in the photographer's studio. Turns out this is his girlfriend. He has a wife. She's his mistress. She lives with his two children in kind of a garret and is pregnant with a third, needs an abortion. And Pauline helps raise the money for it by lying to her parents. And I thought to myself, like, Dirty Dancing just stole this and <laughs> <laughs> and did it so much more timidly, too. I mean, the you yeah. know, a performer finding herself while financing a friend's abortion feels like this is definitely where that came from. And 10 years later, yeah. in, in a, you know, 10 years later, and, and Dirty Dancing was not a studio movie. It was an independent American movie that, you know, kind of became a, a sensation. But even an independent film 10 years after this in America couldn't be as sort of, you know, politically brazen yeah. as Agnes Varda could be in France in 1976. Between the photographer and uh, between the the kind of the yeah singer, not only has she sort of chosen these foils, these uh, male artists, you know, with their various male energies, they're also just such sophisticated foils, like the things that that each of them are looking for you know, from her performance, you know, ultimately, and the way that her performance is going to serve their art and the way that their art is sort of, you know, laid bare as these certain types of failure is just so smart. She's just such a good writer. She is just such a good writer. Over and over and over again, you just find these subtle uh, characterizations uh, that just, they're really like head spinning in how perfectly chosen they are. So much of watching this movie was just so pleasurable for the art of it. I mean, to think about the notion that not only in terms of content, you know, is it unfathomable to find this in an American movie at the time, even just in terms of like, how do you make an art film, essentially, that gets you to Tehran, that gets you to the Netherlands, that gets you to the south of France, that gets you to Paris? Um, it, you know, it is so literally transporting. I found myself so swept away. And it fits in with with something, you know, that we've talked about on a, a couple of these episodes of, um, you know, in the quarantine, like using cinema as um, as a way of sort of vicariously being in places you can't be in. And yeah. um, like when when they sort of first arrive in Iran, I was like, oh, is this going to age well? Like, <laughs> you know, this sort of, um, you know, exoticizing of this of this place. But then I ultimately didn't feel that way at all. And, you know, um, was absolutely like I want to live in in their like garden apartment. Yeah. The story not only travels, but is this epic in every sense of the word. And I was so moved and amazed by the fact that she made something that I would consider to be an epic love story, though the love is between two women. And, you know, it's yeah. it spans time, decades distance. I mean, the fact that half of this movie is in epistolary form, I mean, they're writing letters back yeah. and forth to each other. I mean, that's like, that is like the yearning of a great Russian novel. I mean, but, it, but she's applying it to these two women who are talking about their bodies and the limitations of their lives and domestic problems and concerns. And it's just this, this amazingly radical thing where it feels so vast and so big. And yet at the same time, I feel like that lens has not been applied to women. Yeah, absolutely. And the other thing is that, you know, because you get to know these women over such a long period of time, to get to know them so intimately, and they talk about those things that are classically marginalized as domestic or female and all of that stuff, 
it leads to, I can hardly picture a movie with a happier ending mm. because it is so fully embodied. You know that the ending that has that these two women have come upon and the people in their world have come upon has been reached so intentionally and so open-heartedly, you know, making these choices that are ultimately radical and sort of finding lives that are comfortable and purposeful and right for them. And you as viewers know that because you've spent the time with them. You've, you've seen them wrestle with the questions. It's as happy an ending that I can think of in cinema. And also it's like, I mean, at the end of the day, this is a movie about a woman who has an abortion and then it, nothing terrible happens to yeah. her. You know, and so I think it it's still it's that is still something that you don't see in American cinema. Yeah. I mean, and, and that and that ultimately everything that happens with Dariush and the, the whole thing about having one baby that leaves and then another baby that stays and the idea of family is kind of an elastic unit. I thought was very poignant, which is to say, yeah. like, I love that bit at the end where she's like, my child is being raised with aunts and uncles and cousins and like an entire support system and a network. And it almost seems to sort of reify the solidarity of the feminist movement that was emerging at the time, which is to say, like, it's not about one thing. It's like, it's about creating these communities and these support networks that are bigger than any one of us. I don't know. I felt like there was something so beautiful about that. Also, this is a movie that's about the experience of movements. And I was really expecting, you know, knowing this movie spans 10 years and knowing which 10 years it spans. Like I was expecting to see some, you know, on the ground 1968 stuff and radical action, you know, out in the streets and that kind of thing. But instead, it what it just shows is the way that these things change over time. It shows the ways that those incidents have these intimate impacts and the way that our historical moments um, impact and influence and create the context in which we are allowed to live our lives. Um, and it shows, you know, these women, you know, th you know thriving within it without seeing um, and not needing to see um, any of the quote unquote action. Yeah. Although there is action that is, I mean, like what I thought was really great, Karina, correct me if I'm wrong, but there is a real historical almost crossover into documentary as part of this film, because when they reunite in the street um, for that sort of demonstration in front right. of a courthouse that comes from an actual quite high profile trial in France, right? Varda was, you know, a, an activist who was actually outside the real trial. And so she recreated that scene and she, like the uh, the lawyer who was arguing on behalf of basically it was a trial about um, a woman was put on trial for paying for an abortion for her uh, 16 year old daughter. And so the lawyer representing the mother, um, you know, she has like a cameo in the movie. Mm. We'd be remiss if we didn't talk about the songs. Yeah. Uh, th th <laughs> oh, that, that, first, that first song on the canal boat. Um, when they when she's singing this like lovely song about the magic of the moment of Amsterdam and the canals and the boats and the bikes and the abortionees is incredible. Yeah, I mean, the, just the whole idea of her having this sort of like romantic meet cute at her abortion clinic, yeah. like 
Why is Darius there? Is he there with another woman who's getting an abortion? Yeah, you know? It's not important. Who knows? Who cares? Yeah, I mean, it is so funny. And and it's this sort of like classic, almost like song that would be behind one of these sort of Vaseline-lensed European yeah. sort of romps of the time where you're sort of like walking down a canal and a romantic song is playing. But in this case, it's playing in her head and it's juxtaposed with the abortion, which is just like absurdist and wild. And something about it is just so great. I mean, I think all of the songs in this in this film, to me, came across as quite comical in their execution. And mm-hmm. yet, like I was moved by them, but I think there is a certain kind of sense of humor that comes across that I was really so happy and excited to see because it's, you know, the image of the girl group as they're all outfitted together and sort of like bopping their heads like a little, like, you know, it's very silly and light. And yet what they're singing about is not always light. And I think it's the juxtaposition between the two that feels to me like the real power of it. Yeah, and the juxtaposition between her role as a doo-wop backup singer um, earlier in the movie, too. Oh, that guy that they're singing behind is so good. I love him. Was this a good movie uh, to watch right now? Yes, absolutely. I, um, I feel like after... A particularly stressful couple of weeks, I really needed to uh, sing along with songs about how it's beautiful to be a balloon. (laughs) You know, on the one hand, this is in terms of the it's the pictures that got smallness of it all. um, It is challenging at times to watch the, you know, the slow subtitled movie at home and starting this at 10 o'clock would put sort of an undue burden on the movie that the movie didn't deserve to kind of keep me awake. I only suggest that people keep that in mind. Start this early. Be aware that things get a little slow, but it is so worth taking the trip. Could not have been a more satisfying experience having watched this movie. It's a good movie to watch any time. But especially now, I found it really moving and appropriate to be watching because it is a film about protests and it is a film about putting yourself on the line and it is a film that was radical in the time that it was made and feels radical now and in lots of ways um it's just incredibly brave as a vision and as a message and i think that we are in a time right now where people are being really brave and taking to the streets and deciding that things are bullshit and they're not going to put up with them anymore. And Pauline does the same thing. She walks out on her life. She walks out on her family for what she believes in. And, and Varda was doing the same thing in the streets. And I think there is something about watching this movie right now that made me feel really hopeful, really enraged. What made me feel completely enraged was that, you know, the film ends on this very hopeful note with um, Agnes Varda's, Anya Varda's own daughter, Rosalie, plays Suzanne's daughter. And, you know, there's this sort of bold look to the future, like everything's going to be better for the women of the next generation. Like we did it, like we fought so that they can have it easier. And, you know, we're still dealing with these things. We're still dealing with so many of these things. And, you know, abortion is still a taboo and you know, heavily debated issue in this country and in Europe. And I just feel like it makes me so angry that this film holds up so well. 
in lots of ways. Watching a movie like this makes you understand and it you can apply it to abortion rights, women's rights, or any of the other civil rights issues that we're talking about right now is that you can't just say that you solved a problem because any sort of progress you make on on you know progressive change there's always going to be a threat that it could get rolled back the way that abortion freedoms are getting rolled back. Um, and so you always have to keep fighting. Karina, shall we play a game? Yeah, this is a real gear shift, guys. Okay. <laughs> so we're we're going to play a top five game where you guys try to guess um, the top five box office grocers in a certain category. This is going to be the top five grossing films of all time directed by a woman. Ooh. Um, the object of this game is to name the top five films directed by a woman with numbers adjusted for inflation. And so I looked for a list of these titles organized this way with accurate data, and I could not find it anywhere on the Internet. So I did all the math myself. Oh, my um, goodness. And so I, I basically I basically figured out the top 20 grossing films directed by a woman of all time adjusted for inflation. And I will post that at some point on the Internet as like a collaborative document so other people can work on updating it as oh, the excellent. numbers change. Um but so I made a decision not to include animated movies in this because okay. the sort of process of, of production of those is a little bit different. I did not include any movies co-directed by a man. Mm-hmm. And I did not include the Matrix movies because the Wachowskis were identifying as men when they made those films. And the studio thought that they were green lighting movies directed by two cis men. Excellent point. Um, so this is how the game is played. We're going to start with the highest grossing film directed by a woman of all time. I will tell you the year the movie was released, and you have to tell me the title of the movie. Okay. If you can't figure it out, you can pass. We'll go on to the next one, and then we'll go back to the ones you guys passed on. Okay, okay cool. You ready, right? Rachel? I'm so ready. The number one highest grossing film directed by a woman adjusted for inflation was released in 2017. I, can I guess? Please. Wonder Woman? Correct. Nicely done. Okay. Number two, the second highest grossing, 1989. Huh. Interesting. Is it Yentl? Wait. No, no, that's like eighty-four. <laughs> um, is it? Is it a comedy? Can we ask? Can we ask for a clue? Is it a comedy? It, it is a comedy. Well, you might not think it's funny, but it is a comedy. <laughs> the, the the thing that jumped in my head, but it's much too early for it, is you've got mail, which I think is a, a massive hit. It's not as funny as you've got mail. I'm not as funny as you've got mail. Okay, directed by a woman. What's wrong with me? I might not, we might have to pass. Wow. Okay. Can we come back? It's still available to us. We'll move on to number three, which was released in the year 2000. Is that like the Hurt Locker? No, that came later. We hadn't even had the board. What was wrong with me? That came later. And also not a, not a big smash. I think I know this one. I think 2000. Did Bridget Jones' Diary come out in 2000? Isn't that directed I don't think that's woman? directed by a woman, no. Bridget Jones' Diary was directed by a woman, but that's not the right answer. Is that Sharon Maguire? Yeah. Is that You've Got Mail? It is not. You've got the vague right genre for what this film is, although this is this is higher concept. Okay. Wow. What's wrong with us, Nate? It's higher concept. So it's not something like... Oh, wait. Is it... Um, wait. Wait, wait, wait. Can I guess? Is it is it kind of scary? Uh, <laughs> I think maybe it depends on your definition of, of what you get scared by. Okay, because I was... <laughs> but no, I was, it's not wait, like a I, horror comedy. Oh, okay, because I was going to guess American Psycho. No, but I, I wish that was it, on this list. It, okay. It's not uh, Wayne's World, is it? It's not. That was much earlier. Oh, yeah, of course. Yeah. Um, not only were we failing at this task, Rachel, I feel like we are failing women well, in the I, world. I don't know that it's a failure oh, I know to a not know this movie. By women. It's just these are 
the highest grossing, which maybe tells you something. Well, let's pass on number three and we can come back and move on to number four, which was released in 1988. 1988. Okay, that I have an idea on because I have been waiting for like a Penny Marshall to come up and I believe this has got to be her era, right? Is it big? It is big. Yay! I won one! Ah. Big is the well uh, the fourth highest grossing film of all time directed by a woman. Its box office adjusted for inflation is $249.7 million. Mm. So now number five. Go, well done. Number five was released in 2008. Is that a uh, Nancy Myers movie? It is not. Is it the sequel to Bridget Jones' Diary? <laughs> it is not. Can I just guess movies at random? This one could be considered slightly scary, or at least it includes, it includes tropes of horror. Does it also have the tropes of romance? It does. Is it... Twilight. It is. That makes sense. Yes. Twilight was released in 2008, directed by Catherine Hardwick, and it's uh, adjusted for inflation box office is $228.6 million. So now we can go back and talk about the second and third highest grossing films of all time directed by women. So number two, released in 1989, was directed by somebody who I think is more famous for a film that came out in the 90s. So I feel like let's let's talk instead. Let's talk about the people that directed big movies that we have not hit upon yet. Well, there's, like you said, there's Nancy Myers, Nora Ephron. Right. Um, Didn't Amy Heckerling direct uh, Look Who's Talking? Is it Look Who's Talking? Are you asking me or are you asking Rachel? Well, I mean, the truth is I'm just throwing out well, to She's the more universe. famous for a movie in the 90s. And again, maybe what Karina's referring to is Clueless, in which case then it could be a, a Heckerling yeah, exactly. production. I think this might be uh, Look Who's Talking. Let's try it. It is. Oh, wow. Hey, look at that. Look Who's Talking is the second highest grossing film of all time directed by a woman. It made $290 million adjusted for inflation. Wow. Um, wow. So, I mean, like, just take a look at, like, the the disparity, right? So, you know, now you can make a movie in a superhero genre and it can make $412 million. Um, right. But consider how big of a hit Look Who's Talking was if it was released in 1989 and it's still the second highest grossing film ever directed by a woman. Um, and justice for Amy Heckerling, because I feel like people don't talk about her ever. Yep. As like a true hit maker, mm-hmm. too. Like, not only are there beloved movies, those are like massive movies. So let's go back to the only one you guys haven't gotten so far, which was released in the year 2000. It was directed by someone whose name you've mentioned. And this is the high, okay. the high concept romantic comedy, which could be scary depending on how you define fear. It's a high. I mean, we've already had Look Who's Talking, so I don't know how high we're getting. Um, Isn't one of the big disaster movies? Um, it is not uh, of that era, like a Mimi. Oh, it's not. It is it's not, not a Mimi no, Leader movie. Deep Impact is lower down on the list. I think we haven't mentioned Betty Thomas. I feel like Betty Thomas has a bunch of bunch of late the early two thousands, late nineties hits. It is not a Betty Thomas film. Betty Thomas's highest grossing film was the Eddie Murphy Dr. Doolittle, and I think that's like number six or seven on the list. It's a high concept comedy, but does not qualify. And it's obviously not. I'm feeling. I mean, I'm trying to think about like what were the big romantic high concept. Miss Congeniality era. Yeah, what's the. But I'm like, what was directed by a woman at that time that would have been this kind of high concept slash scary? It's yeah, not exactly. really scary. Um, it's not really scary. It's it has like sort of a, a like you know a body horror element to it, but 
Oh, is it a body switching movie? Is it like? Well, it's um, not Jennifer's body as much as I wish it were. Like uh, what, is it something like what men want or what women want? Or I'm going to need you to say the title of the movie and say that's your final answer. What women want? Final answer. It probably is what women want, given the idea that I hate to mention Mel Gibson. Anything with Mel Gibson qualifies as body horror at this point. Yeah, it so is what women want. It is what women want. Directed by Nancy Myers. Uh, you know that it is Nancy Myers' highest grossing film. And it adjusted for inflation, grossed $272.5 million. I really hate that we were so bad at this game. But I also feel like it's <laughs> sort of too. interesting because these are not the movies that I associate with my favorite women directors, even the ones that were mentioned. Exactly. So, no, know, I completely agree. It's totally interesting. I'm like, I would never... I totally even forgot what Women Want was the Nancy Myers movie. And what a shame that that's the one that is the highest grossing. It's uh, This is totally a valuable exercise. And justice for Amy Heckerling. Justice for Betty Thomas. Justice for Mimi Leader. Yeah. And of course, these are all white women, obviously, naturally, horrifyingly. I mean, yep. it's just, uh, I'm upset that some films from recent aren't even in the conversation. Like, how much did Little Women gross, Karina? Like, was that even up there? How about yeah. Mamma Mia? Uh, Mamma Mia is on the all-time top 20. Little Women only grossed about $100 million, which is a lot. I mean, yeah. it was a huge hit. It's a lot of money. But, um, yeah, it didn't, it didn't quite get up there. And, you know, I mean, some of the things where... I mean, obviously, like these movies, it, it shows you that these movies directed by women that have this sort of massive crossover success are movies that, you know, obviously any gender, any race can direct anything. But these are not movies yeah. where you're like, well, this is a real personal vision on the part of that one woman the way that, you know, the Agnes Varda film is. Exactly. Well, I mean, Wonder Woman is about a woman, but, you know, big is a men's story. What women want is ostensibly... I guess Helen Hunt gets to say a few lines, but it's like really Mel Gibson's story. Like, look who's talking is a star vehicle for John Travolta. It's feeling very male. The other thing about it is when you think about like, like what does Hollywood want? Hollywood wants hit makers. And it's amazing to think that like you can direct, you know, a deep impact or you can direct um, a look who's talking. Any of these like, you know, massive sort of hit movies. And it doesn't guarantee that you can just keep rolling with movies, uh, you know, for years to come after you've delivered so hard with like Wayne's World. A good game, despite our failure, (laughs) Rachel. Mm, That was a hard one. Rachel, can you tell us about a movie theater, a film series, something out there in the world of cinema that you are missing going to these days? Yeah, I acutely miss the movies in the summer because this is around the time when New York City starts to become unbearable inside and humid and horrifying. Basically, you have to escape to the movies to have any kind of decent summer, and we're not going to get to do that, which is starting to become clear to me. I mean, there's drive-in theaters that are opening kind of around the city, but if you don't have a car, you're a little bit out of luck there. But the movie theaters that I'm missing a lot this summer are Metrograph, which has really great uh, summer repertory programming that I am really missing. Film Forum in the mornings, when we do sort of the matinee summer film series. And then I'm also missing Nighthawk, which is the indie cinema closest to us because they serve food. And the thing I really miss so much is having a cocktail and watching a old movie um we i remember 
like last summer, we went to a brunch screening there of House on Haunted Hill, and I had so many mimosas, and it was like the best morning of my life. I keep, I like have <laughs> such a fa- fond memory of that being like a summer thing that we did, and it's not going to happen this year, so I'm really missing those. Here's the part of the show where we normally find out what we're going to be watching next week. But we are taking a bit of a break, planning to be back after the 4th of July holiday. And when we do come back, we're going to tweak the format a little bit. Nothing earth-shaking, just going to shake things up a bit to make sure this little movie club we've started is as fun as possible for you all and for us. You can follow each of us on Twitter. I'm at Karina Longworth. Nate's at The Memory Palace to make sure you don't miss any news. We'll also drop a little update in the feed when the time comes to let you know what movie's coming up next and precisely when. In the meantime, you can drop us a line if you'd like at smallpictureshow at gmail.com. And if you have been enjoying the show, do us a favor and share your favorite episode with a friend or on your social media. Go over to iTunes and rate and review and all that stuff. And we will be back before you know it. Talk to you again. <laughs>